Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, with the COVID-19 vaccines beginning to roll out for kids ages 5 to 11, we'll get a snapshot of how one Northern Colorado school district is coping with the current state of the pandemic. And we'll speak with a new arts collective on the Front Range that's trying to make concerts and other events safer and more inclusive for all. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado is still seeing a spike in COVID cases, and education officials are among those keeping a watchful eye on the numbers. There's no question the pandemic has impacted learning for children in schools across the state with challenging new learning formats and frequent changes to the day-to-day, coupled with a range of COVID-19 health measures like cohort quarantines. At the start of the 2020 school year, Greeley-Evans District 6 was one of a few large districts in northern Colorado to return to full-time in-person instruction. But as COVID cases increased last winter, classes were forced to move back to remote for a short time before the district slowly returned to in-person class at the end of that school year. And this August, District 6 once again came back for full-time in-person class. I recently spoke with Superintendent Deirdre Pilch about how COVID is going in the district this year. She began by explaining what circumstances it would take for the district to halt in-person class again. Our trigger for this, for like norovirus, has been like 30%. If 30% of the total of that school of students and staff combined are out at at any given time because of this, this virus... But, you know, 30% is very, very high. We're nowhere near 30% and never were last year. Um, So, you know, there's really two factors. One would be if there's a public, well, there's three. If there's a public health order saying we need to close, we're going to follow that public health order. We've always followed the public health orders. Um, If if there's such a high number of students and staff out that we can't keep operations going smoothly, then we would go remote at that point. And, and we now have the ability to do that at an individual site if we need to and flip the whole, you know, flip a whole school if we have to, or a grade level if we had to, to remote. And we've done some of that along the way. Cause there's a point at which you have so many kids out in your classroom um, that it's not, I mean, it'd be better to have everybody remote than having, you know, 17 kids at home who are, who are sick or quarantined. And then, you know, you, the big a big changer has been the guidance around quarantining this school year, uh, because if we are fully masked, we do not have to to quarantine children or staff who are fully masked for an exposure, unless they're positive, then they need to isolate. So we do we did put a mask requirement into place here in early late August, early September, um, pre K through eight, and so we we are not doing near the number of quarantines we were a year ago. We were quarantining hundreds to thousands of kids last year, and that's not the case now. What are current case numbers looking like in your district, just in general? We hover uh, every month around about, I mean, I, I so I have a spreadsheet, but in general, we, you know, we're right around 300 to, to 500 positive cases at any given time. And, but we're a big organization room. I mean, you know, 22,000 students, almost 3,000 staff, and at any given time, like right now, I have 262 
positive or probable cases today. And, you know, then, then we'll have some more tomorrow, but some of those will come off because they'll clear. So we hover anywhere from, you know, 300 to, it's been as high as about 600 cases at a given time. Is there a lot of spread among teachers right now? Uh, and if, if so, are you able to cover when a teacher tests positive? There has been some spread among teachers. And it's, it's been when we've been together doing high-risk activities, typically like eating and hanging out for periods of time eating. Uh, we don't, you know, I can't say that we see a, lo- a lot of known spread. I mean, there's, there's just so much COVID everywhere that it's hard to say where someone got COVID, except for if you know you have it in the family. Now, we will have sometimes where one student, let's say in a fifth grade classroom has COVID, and then two other students who sit near that student will end up positive with COVID. And you you can link those together. Um, And and so we do see some of that. Um, You know, we're seeing more cases than we were a year ago, but, but I've been cautioned by the health department um, locally and at the state level that you really don't, it's really not um, a, a, an appropriate measure to say, you know, I, I only had 60 cases, for example, I'm just making that up a year ago at this time. And now I have 262 because a year ago we didn't have the testing available. We have a year ago, we didn't have the variant. And so there's, you know, there's just a lot more COVID because of the, the variant and the testing, you know, we're testing in all of our school sites. We're able to test if parents give permission, we have a drive up testing site here in the district. I want to just go back to the quarantine policies for a moment, um, because when someone tests positive for COVID, there isn't a requirement as long as people are wearing masks. Is quarantine any part of the response? So if you are positive for COVID, you as the individual, you have to isolate. So you isolate, but the people you have been with, if they were wearing a mask and the person positive for COVID was wearing a mask, you don't have to quarantine. We just send a you know, we send a notice home to monitor for symptoms. And if they do develop symptoms, then we do quarantine. Now, are vaccines mandated for teachers and staff in schools? Not here in District 6. We have not mandated vaccines. We have about a 75% vaccination rate among staff. Um, and, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work with our health partners in the community make, to make vaccines available for those people who choose to be vaccinated. Um, but at this point, we are not requiring vaccines for staff or for students. Would there be a point where it would be required? You know, that's a board of education decision, Erin. You know, I, for me, uh, the definite would be, you know, if there's a state or federal requirement, then that becomes really clear, right? Um, and so the question was, well, when, when the president said, you know, employers with over 100 employees, but that wasn't. Uh, that's private employers, not public. And so at this point, that that mandate does not require, it does not apply to public education educators. So, you know, the board's going, that's something our board of education will have to decide if and when it looks like it's appropriate for to require back. We don't, there is no vaccine that we require of staff at all I mean, for anything. No flu vaccines or anything. No. So it's a big step to require a vaccine. We're speaking with District 6 Superintendent Deirdre Pilch. I want to ask about the vaccine for younger kids, because now that vaccines are going to be available for children ages 5 to 11, is that going to be required for students? Not at this time, Erin. I don't see us doing a requirement for for students for vaccines. Not at this time. Again, I think it would have to be a federal requirement for us to look at that. Uh, That's pretty clear to me. You know, we will work with our health care partners in the community and we have tremendous partners um, 
and we'll work with them to put out information to our families around clinics that are available uh, for those families who are choosing to vaccinate their children. But I think it would be a, it'd be a federal or state mandate before we'd probably go there. Does that mean it's treated differently from other um, vaccines, childhood vaccinations that are required? Yeah. So those vaccines that are required are federal requirements. The, the ones that are, you know, we required it for school entrance are federal requirements. So we, we would do the same, I think, with the COVID vaccine. I want to ask about what you've been hearing from parents and from the community about District 6's COVID policies. Well, you know, we have mixed reviews, of course, Erin, like everywhere else in the country, uh, there are mixed reviews. Um, what I do hear, and I think, I think people do understand and believe that we did everything we could last year to get school open and keep school open, and that we put very good protocols in place last year and this year to keep students and staff safe. We, we absolutely did. But I, I will tell you, the mask issue is very controversial, of course, and especially here in, in Weld County. We don't have a mask mandate in the county. Um, and, and, and there's no state mandate for masks. And so, um, you know, when our board of education made the decision to, to pass a motion to put masks on children pre-K through eight, that was controversial. And so some people were thrilled and thanking us and, and, and craziness for taking those extra steps. And other people are, were, you know, furious. They don't want masks on little kids. So it's, you know, people are all over the place. We're, whatever you see in the world, in you know, what, what you see in the country, what you see in Colorado, you're going to see in your local school districts. That's the reality. It, I mean, we're just a microcosm of the bigger society out there. I wanted to ask you about just how your job has changed since the pandemic hit. I, I ran across an article that was written in September that was called uh, something like five ways superintendents jobs have changed permanently. I'm just wondering from your perspective and in conversation with your colleagues, if you're seeing any changes to what the job of leading a school district looks like now, um, how has the role changed for you for better or for worse? First, I want to just say that there are some absolute significant bright spots that have come out of all of this. We have moved public education in a way that it would have taken us a decade to move. I mean, we can flip to synchronous learning. We're using technology in ways that only a few people were using it in our school district before. Uh, all of our curriculum has digital capability. All of our students are little digital natives. They all have a Chromebook in their hands. And thank goodness we passed our mill levy override six years ago because that that is what gave us the revenue to be able to put those pieces into place. So um, that, you know, education has changed because of this pandemic in some good ways and then then in some sad ways. Um, I think the other one of the other things that's really changed for superintendents is the level of expertise we have to have around what's coming at us from the health uh, officials and understanding that information that's coming down from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment or from the Weld County Department of Public Health and Environment or from physicians and um, and being able to interpret that data and what does that data mean and then to make those decisions. I, I would guess that all of us still have a standing emergency response meeting weekly. We, you know, we didn't have that before and that, that you know, initially we were doing it every day and then we went down a couple times a week and then finally this fall we were able to do one meeting a week with my emergency team just, just to, to address things related to COVID and COVID protocols. And, you know, things like, are we going to allow visitors in the classroom? Are we going to allow uh, uh, banquets for athletic um, celebrations and have food? And are we going to bring people together to do that? You know, so there's just lots of decisions have to be made. So those weekly emergency meetings, the other thing that has really changed is like 
is, and this has been very positive actually, is the work that I, I get to do with the medical professionals in our community and in our state and um, those relationships and how they've developed. And, uh, you know, I have a, a core group of, of medical professionals that I, I can text and call and ask for advice and, and get their input as I'm making these very complex decisions. And so that's been a beautiful partnership that has come out of this. I have a weekly meeting with the Weld County Health Department officials and um, neighboring Weld County superintendents. It's a meeting that I convened, oh, probably a year ago. I said, let's start meeting. And then we started, the superintendents did. And then I, then I brought in health officials. And, and that's been a group that we've been able to bring some of the docs and um, CEOs from the hospitals into to give us advice also. So, um, you know, we, that isn't work we've had to do. We haven't had it before. We didn't have to think about how do you run COVID serial testing in a school and how do you build that system out to do that and contact tracing, you know, and finally this year we did hire some of our own contact tracers because we just were killing our people off at the building level and the district level doing all that contact tracing. Greeley Evans District 6 Superintendent Deirdre Pelch, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for giving me the time. Children ages 5 to 11 are now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine, and many people have questions about this step in the vaccination process. KUNC is collaborating with America Amplified to answer your questions, and we have one of those answers today. Susan asked us, my child turns 12 in January. Should she get the 5 to 11-year-old vaccine now or wait for the 12 and older vaccine? Susan's answer comes from Shira Abiles, an assistant clinical professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UC San Diego Health. Shira says, this is an excellent question that many parents are contemplating. The vaccines worked well in 11-year-olds and so would work well in 12-year-olds too. The advantages in getting protected sooner rather than later can potentially prevent illnesses. And it's unclear if there would be a benefit with a higher dose. Go ahead and vaccinate your child and get them protected sooner rather than later. What questions do you have about the vaccine for younger children? Submit them at KUNC.org and we'll send back your answers. Colorado edition from KUNC. With concerts slowly coming back into motion over the course of the year, many of us have already leapt at the opportunity to reunite with the joy of live music or other arts events. But while many people are rushing back to theaters, concert halls, and DIY venues, others are apprehensive to get back to the same old scene. Conventional venues like these aren't always the safest place, especially for women, queer folks, and BIPOC individuals. And it can be hard, if not impossible, to enjoy what's happening on stage when you're feeling uncomfortable. In recognition of this issue and other issues pervasive in the art scene, two recent Denverites, Amy Karp and Ileana Rivera, co-founded the Text Me When You're Home Collective, which organizes events across the Front Range and seeks to make the art scene in Colorado safer and more uplifting. They're with us now. Ileana, Amy, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. We're very excited to be here. Yeah, thank you, Erin. I want to talk 
more about when Text Me When Your Home started and how it came to be, but let's shed some light on this issue of safety for many people at concerts and other events before we do that. What have you two experienced yourselves or what have you heard from friends about safety at shows? So Ileana and I are both very avid concert goers, have been for our whole lives. And um, we have both experienced a lot of different sort of problematic things happening in spaces. Um, but specifically, we both used to work for the University of Progr- uh, Boulder's Program Council. So we were planning all the shows and kind of had a really in-depth look into this. And I just remember specifically, we'd be working on the Welcome Fest concert and talking about different procedural stuff and just like the boring logistics of planning a concert and it would come up so casually that like if there was only like a handful of people who reported sexual harassment sexual assault that was considered a good year and it's a huge bummer that that's something that we're like I hope there's only three or four people who report a sexual harassment in the crowd tonight you know that shouldn't be the shouldn't be the goal Right. Eliana, does that kind of ring true for you too? Yes, definitely. Also just growing up and being around scenes where people are drinking alcohol, you're always told like never leave your drink unattended, Um, you know, kind of make sure you go to the restroom with other people. It's just kind of been ingrained into our daily like practices when we go to large events. And I think that recognizing that is probably the first step to like, how can we make spaces not like that where you can like let your guard down and just enjoy yourself. Have a reasonable expectation that you will be safe. Exactly. Well, this issue is sort of in the crosshairs of the collective. Text me when you're home. Let's back up. Tell us about how you two met and when you started talking about making this collective. So um, Amy and I met our freshman year of college at Program Council. So we both started out with like event planning and kind of hit it off really quickly about like we just always wanted to go to concerts together and had a lot of fun doing so. Um, And friends always say, you know, like text me when you get home, making sure like you're okay. You want to make sure that all your friends get home safe. And um, we kind of just had one of our many rushes of ideas at once and we were talking about how unfortunate it is that we don't have locations that we can safely like hang out at and listen to music without kind of being on guard so we were like why don't we create that why don't we just begin it ourselves and I think that was something that we both have thought about just in our lives and then we met each other and bounced ideas off of each other and that's how it came to fruition. What sort of reaction has the collective gotten so far? What are some of the things that you've heard from people who attend your events? It's been really nice. People are very excited, I think, just to have the space of other folks facilitating. I think people are really excited to get back into um, event spaces. And we've heard a lot of really great feedback from attendees and people who were performing or selling art at our events. And I think... um, it's just new and we're learning every time. So everyone's feedback has been very helpful. And we really try to make sure that we take everyone's like notes into account, good or bad. We're speaking with Text Me When You're Home co-founders, Ileana Rivera and Amy Karp. Amy, can you tell us a little bit about some of the pop-ups and concert events that you have organized? 
Sure. Yes. Um, it started in my backyard in Boulder on the hill. Um, it was a really great space. I had a nice backyard to make sure we had lots of room for art vendors and a good stage area, um, like all the cute houses in Boulder. Um, yeah, we started because it started with our the idea for a fund, actually. We said that we wanted to be able to start a fund to give money directly to artists, especially like coming out of the pandemic. A lot of artists have been struggling, trying to find a way to get back out there, but also just like to have enough money to live. So we wanted to be able to provide money directly to them. So our first event was a fundraiser for a grant fund. Um, it was hugely successful. We had six or seven musicians, 13 different art vendors uh, participating in this, you know, just my backyard. And we ended up raising um, $2,700 and were able to provide uh, nine different micro grants to different artists who had applied. So it was really exciting. Wow. And so raising funds, or what else makes these events different from more conventional concert spaces? What sort of principles are you employing at these events? Um, before each of our events, we make sure that the attendees and the artists are aware of our norms of the event space. Um, kind of, we don't tolerate like bigotry, sexism, racism, ableism, um, even like mask reciprocity and things like that. We make sure that people are aware before they attend and while they're attending that these will be upkept the entire time. And that people will get kicked out if they don't abide by these rules. A lot of people don't do that. And it's really upsetting. Yes, exactly. Right. So you establish that right off the bat. For those who aren't familiar, can I ask what mask reciprocity is? Okay. So um, still being in a pandemic right now, folks feel more comfortable, even vaccinated, still wearing a mask. So if we are in an environment where you want to go up to a vendor and they're wearing a mask, we ask that you put one on yourself, you know, like no questions about it. Just respect that person's space physically. And I think that's really important. Well, how has the pandemic impacted what you two have been working on? Concerts, for example, and in other ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, it affected both of our jobs in a huge way. We went from planning these like really fun, large and small scale concerts alike for the school to planning virtual stuff, which was still like something to do, but you just don't get that sense of community, of belonging, of like being in a physical space with people um, that you do at a concert. And people, including ourselves especially, just really felt that that was something that was lacking. And I mean, Text Me When You're Home is a pandemic baby, basically. We, it's what birthed the idea for it. And we always come back to this idea of facilitating community. Uh, whether you're an artist or a patron, I think there's a lot to be gained by being in this space where you can really connect with one another. And we try to plan our events around the idea that like different types of artists and musicians and fa fans of different things are all coming together and maybe discovering that they're a fan of something they didn't know they were before and making friends and yeah. What can venues and people who run events, large and small, do uh, to be proactive about this? What can they do or what should they be doing to make their spaces more open and more safe? Great question. <laughs> uh, like Ileana was mentioning before, 
the event norms are a huge thing for us. When people know it's expected of them, I think that that genuinely makes people act better. Um, and I was surprised looking through different lists of local venues and like big festivals and things like that. There's not rules anywhere. It's not something that you're agreeing to when you buy a ticket. It's not something that's listed on the, their websites. It's just, it's not even an expectation. And I think making it something where, you know, bare minimum, if you're harassing someone, you're going to get kicked out. Like that's something that should be instituted everywhere all the time. You don't get to enjoy this concert if you're making everyone else's night worse. I would also like to add, um, I think training the folks that work in their venues on how to spot things like um, when people are uncomfortable or recoiling physically or even um, how to spot if a drink has been messed with or drugged and racial sensitivity training to security. I think that is a really big thing that venues can implement because I think a lot of it has to do with drunk people acting up and I don't think that some of the people who work there are super comfortable with interfering or intervening with anything. So I think making sure that your staff feels ready to address these issues while they are happening. That was Ileana Rivera and Amy Karp of the Text Me When You're Home Collective. You can find links to their work at our website, KUNC.org. Thank you both so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we learn about a new plan to provide migration routes for the state's big game population. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 